passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, as I was preparing for uh, our text this morning, mainly the literal text, not, not my sermon necessarily, um, I... <laughs> The thing that came to mind was the book Fox and Socks by Dr. Seuss. Uh, we read that book a lot with our kids when they were younger, and if you're not familiar with it, it is a tongue twister. And the purpose of the book is to try to get you to stumble over words. And uh, if you flip into 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 through 39, you will see what I might suggest is the biblical version of Fox and Socks with some of these names, just so you know. But we'll get there in a second. Uh, as someone who uh, grew up in the church, uh, some of these stories are, are familiar to me. There's not a lot of information, but there are some stories that might stand out to you. In our text this morning, uh, we'll be looking at part of 2 Samuel chapter 21, part of 2 Samuel chapter 23, and, and I'll explain why we're doing that here in a moment. But these are a collection of various short stories of deliverance for the people of Israel through the incredible acts of bravery from David's soldiers. And so oftentimes these two sections are referred to as David's mighty men. Uh, that's a term that is used in the scripture to refer to these different people. And I want to emphasize the, the word short here because the longest of these collection of stories is only five verses long. Most of them are uh, a verse, maybe two, or no verses at all. Just someone's name is mentioned as a part of a list. That longest story is a story about David pouring water out onto the ground. I say all that to point out there's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that we might not understand about these passages. And I would say that there is nothing inherently wrong with having a sanctified imagination while you are looking at these texts. As long as we do so with humility and we keep our understanding or our imagination grounded in the Word of God, not contradicting what has been revealed in God's Word. I think the main point is that we, we don't know a lot of what we're about to read, the specifics of these details. And I think that that's intentional. Because the main point of all of these stories is not to satisfy the imagination of a little boy like me growing up, but instead it's something deeper. It's something more significant. And that's what we have to have at the forefront of our minds as we consider this text this morning, asking this question. What do these stories reveal to us about God? What do these stories reveal to us about his kingdom that matter for us today? Now, let's take a moment, let's back up and, and talk about something that we discussed last week briefly, where we are in 2 Samuel. We are in 2 Samuel chapters 21 through 24. This is an epilogue. And this is a collection of stories and songs from throughout the reign of David. These stories have been placed here, not in chronological order, but in order for us to, to reach a conclusion about what David's reign was like. So let's go ahead and throw that graphic up that shows what specifically this structure of the epilogue looks like. As you can see, there's an intentional structure here. This epilogue starts and ends with a story of God's judgment upon Israel for the actions of their king. 
That's followed by a description of David's mighty men, these soldiers, how God uses them to work deliverance for his people. That's also the second to last story. And then in the middle, we have these two songs about God's relationship with his chosen king, both his present chosen king, that would be David, as well as a song that David writes looking for his future king, and that, of course, would be Jesus. So if you're wondering why we're going through part of chapter 21 and we're skipping chapter 22 and we're going to the end of chapter 23 this morning, it's because of this structure right here. These two stories are related to one another. They're all about God's deliverance of his people, but not just of his people. Specifically in these verses, we see his deliverance through his people. This is the way that God most often works in the world. He works through his people on behalf of his people. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 21. We'll spend some time there, and then we'll look at 2 Samuel chapter 23 and close out there. We're basically going to break our texts into three parts, and then we'll close by considering what we can learn from this passage. Let's go ahead and pray as we jump in to God's word. Father, we are grateful for your word We ask that you would speak to your church this morning, even as you have said that you will do. God, we ask that you would help us to see this text, not just as a collection of stories from thousands of years ago, but as applicable to our lives today. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, well, our passage in 2 Samuel chapter 1 or excuse me, chapter 21 is a collection of stories about Israel's battle with the Philistines, their neighbors, their old enemies, focusing specifically on how God delivers his people. Now this text, these verses here, focus on four battles with four separate Philistine giants. Now as I already alluded to earlier this morning, there are a lot of names in these verses, some wonderfully challenging names. And if I make it through this morning unscathed, I have printed off a certificate for myself to hang in my office that says Certificate of Achievement. This certifies that Jordan Gowing has successfully said all the names in 2 Samuel chapter 21 and 23 while reading the text. Signed by myself to myself. Almost certainly I will be throwing that away because I don't think that I can make it through. (laughs) We start right here at the very beginning in chapter 21, verse 15, with a man named Ishbi Banab. Last night we were practicing these names at the dinner table and it was quite fun and entertaining. And and I do want to say one thing because, you know, I just kind of set the mood here being a little lighthearted, which I I think is is good, it's healthy, um, but also at the same time, Um, let's try as hard as we can to not let these really weird names distract us from the, the, the focus of the passage of what God's trying to reveal to us, all right? So let's go ahead and jump in, starting in verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants. And they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary And Ishbi Banab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. 
Here we see that some point during David's reign, and again, we don't know exactly when, the Philistines invade the land of Israel. And so David and his men, they go down from Jerusalem, Jerusalem being one of the highest locations in Israel. So they went down into the plains near the Philistine territory. And apparently this was uh, something that took place later on in the reign of David because he grows weary in battle. And one of the Philistines, a particularly large man, again, named Ishbi Banab, which I think means taking captive, a little play on words there, notices David's weariness. And he concludes, well, you know what? The key to destroying Israel is to destroy David. Here's our best chance yet. And so he makes it a concerted effort to, to ignore everyone else and to go after David, to kill this weary David, because he is, again, growing weary. And yet, David's nephew, Abishai, intervenes. Instead, he kills this giant. And there's no grand drama like the last time we, we read about a battle between a Philistine giant and an Israelite. That's David and Goliath. The story is very matter-of-fact. The, the point is, is relatively clear. This is not just a story about God's deliverance of his people. Specifically here in these verses, it is about God's deliverance of his king. It is about his deliverance of his king through the faithfulness of the king's people. And I want you to just tuck that thought away because we'll come back to it later, considering all of this passage in light of that truth, God's commitment to his king, but also how God's going to use the commitment of the king's people to the king to accomplish his purposes. Now, after the defeat of Ishbi Banab, the Israelites realize that David's presence on the battlefield is actually, a, it's, not a li, it's not an asset anymore, it's actually a liability. And so the Philistines they're going to just start adopting this approach to just pursue David. So they say, you know what, David, now you need to just stay home so a national disaster can be averted. Let's go ahead and look at the next story, another battle with another Philistine giant, though his name is easier to pronounce, Saph, verse 18. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathites, struck down Saph, who is one of the descendants of the giants. So again, we have a battle between Israel and the Philistines. This time it is on the border town between Philist the, the land of the Philistines and Israel in a place called Gob. And we know nothing of the battle other than it was an Israelite victory in large part due to the actions of Sibachai, one of David's military leaders. Some later point, battle resumes at Gob where we are told of another Philistine giant defeated by another Israelite. Verse 19, and there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's bean. Now this verse might be surprising to us. And I mentioned earlier that I was reading these names, practicing this passage out loud last night after supper. And as I got to this verse, my son, my oldest son, says, Dad, you're wrong. Some guy... I, he, I don't know. Elhanan. Elhanan did not kill Goliath. David did. I was impressed. One, because he was listening. Two, because he remembered. And he brings up a question that we might have ourselves. After all, isn't Goliath the Gittite the name of the Philistine giant that David kills back in 1 Samuel chapter 17? Is this a contradiction? And there are a number of ways that people have sought to make sense of this. Some who would deny the inerrancy of Scripture, would conclude this is a blatant contradiction. This is, a, this is proof positive. 
that we can't trust the Bible. Or at minimum, 1 Samuel chapter 17 is, is a creative reimagining of this event. It never actually happened. It's just an example of the king getting credit for what his men did. Others who might be more committed to the authority of Scripture, like us, have concluded that there were two men from Gath named Goliath, and both of them were giants. Or maybe even the name Goliath is just a generic term because it might mean heap, a heap of a man. But I think the best understanding and understanding this passage in light of our commitment to the authority of Scripture is to consider the words of the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. It says this, And there was again war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Now remember, the Bible was written millennia before the invention of the printing press. So if you wanted a copy of the Bible, you would have to take someone else's copy and write it out by hand. And when you add in a lot of confusing names, you add in bad handwriting and a whole host of other things, the length of what you're trying to copy, it is not at all surprising that some errors exist in the copies that you make. And that's probably the best explanation of what we have here in 2 Samuel chapter 21. At some point, there was a copy error that became widespread. You know, maybe, and this is just conjecture here, maybe the the scribe who made that first original error, he sees the name Goliath and he remembers Goliath. That's a common name compared to Lami. And he sees that and he says, oh yeah, I know this story. And so he goes ahead and writes down Goliath and introduces an error into the Bible. Ultimately, we don't know. But I would suspect that the original now lost version of 2 Samuel chapter 21 says something like what is preserved in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. The important thing is to not get caught up in the specifics or the minutia, but instead recognize the main point. God delivers his people through the work of his people. Again, we're told of another final battle between the Israelites and a Philistine giant. This one, mercifully, is unnamed, starting in verse 20. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. Now, what sticks out to us about this passage, right, is obviously he's got an extra digit on each of his hands as well as on each of his feet. But that's not what should stick out to us. That's just a historical detail. That's not the main point. The main point is is clearer than what we've seen in, in every other passage so far in chapter 21. It's found at the very beginning of verse 21. And when he taunted Israel... Now, we might ask, why is this significant? Because it reminds us of what we saw from Goliath back in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle, the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. As David talked with his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, 
came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who comes up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And David saw, said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you notice the parallels here between what the Philistine giant in chapter 21 is doing as well as what David says that, that Goliath is doing in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel? In both cases, we see a, a commitment to defy Israel or taunt Israel. It's not just to call into question the character and honor of Israel. More importantly, it's to call into question the character and honor of God himself. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David, his, his motivation to, to action against Goliath isn't this reward, but instead it's taking away the reproach from Israel. David, back in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, he, he's, he hears Goliath and he's not driven to terror. He's driven to, to this holy wrath. That's why he essentially says, just who does this uncircumcised Philistine think that he is, that he is mocking the armies of the living God? And he refuses to stand by. Because for the first time in the story of 1 Samuel chapter 17, someone finally brings God into the equation. David asked the question that these texts are built on. Does having a God who actually exists, who is actually alive, matter? And the rest, as they say, is history in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we see the same concern on display from David's nephew in 2 Samuel chapter 21. Just consider how different the nation is under David than it was under Saul. Under Saul, no one was willing to stand up and defend the honor of their God. And now we have this man walking in this path that's been blazed by his uncle. Jonathan strikes down the, the giant. He delivers Israel and defends his God, God's honor. And the chapter ends with a summary statement on David's reign. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Here we're left with a positive picture of David's kingdom and David's reign. Under David, Israel is delivered from its enemies. Why? Well, implied in that last section is because they were concerned primarily about the glory of God, and he used his people to deliver his people. That's actually made a little bit more explicit in the next section, 2 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, our passage in 2 Samuel chapter 23, again, it breaks into two sections. First, we have the exploits of this group of three men called the three. These are the three warriors in David's kingdom that have the most impressive resumes, if you will. And then uh, another section referring to the 30, which is a group with impressive resumes of their own. So let's go ahead and, and first look at the three, starting in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, a Tachamanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, son of Ohohai. 
He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. These men are little known, perhaps because of how hard their names are to pronounce. But these deeds are, are quite impressive. The first one here, and I'm not going to say his name again, uh, was known for defeating 800 enemy soldiers at one time. The second, Eleazar, was uh, this man who declared the supremacy of his God over the Philistine gods. That's what is referred to when he says he defied the Philistines. And he dealt with the fallout of that by fighting until his muscles were so weary that he couldn't even let go of his sword. And the third, Shammah, defeated the food, defended the food supply of Israel against a Philistine attack, which to us might not sound as significant as the previous two, but it would have been a great boost of morale. Now, we're not told much more than that about them, and that's intentional, because their daring and greatness, again, is not the main point of the text. That's not why they're included here. The main point is found in repetition specifically in verse 10 and verse 12. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the Lord worked a great victory. This is the lens through which we must not only understand those two stories, but really all of 2 Samuel chapter 23 and even 2 Samuel chapter 21. That while you should celebrate the bravery and obedience and daring of men such as this, the main focus is on a sovereign God who works to accomplish deliverance for his people through his people. Now, the Bible states that explicitly there so that as we're reading the rest of this chapter, we will read it implicitly in the following stories. The next section, the rest of this chapter is about the 30, which is not a literal 30 men, but a collection of prestigious warriors, about 30 in number, number that come and go, that serve throughout David's reign. But first, we have a story of David and the water of Bethlehem. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Now it appears that this story actually takes place before David is king. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, David is on the run from King Saul, and he's also on the run from the Philistines. And so he has nowhere else to hide, and so he ends up hiding in a cave in the Judean wilderness named Adullam. And this is where people actually first start to come to him. He first starts to draw an army to himself. And I want you to put yourself in David's position in this moment, just a short time earlier, just, uh, just a few weeks or, or maybe a month earlier. David is the darling of Israel. David is married to the king's daughter. He is serving in the king's court as one of his most trusted advisors. He is Israel's greatest warrior. 
And then the bottom falls out. Saul tries to kill David multiple times. David ends up on the run. And in a moment of weakness, David surprisingly goes to the Philistines, hoping that he can find refuge there in Saul's enemies. But when he gets to the Philistines, the Philistines, they remember David as the one who slaughtered all of the all, numbers of Philistines. And so he has to run from there as well. And soon David finds himself hiding in a cave, and and it's in the midst of the hottest and driest part of the year. David finds himself homesick, being from Bethlehem. And he finds himself homesick, longing for the days of his youth when he would be able to just go to the well at Bethlehem and pull out a drink. And in that moment of homesickness and longing, David sighs and he says to himself, what I wouldn't do for a drink from the water of the well of Bethlehem right now. And three of David's warriors, they're unnamed, they hear David's longing and think to themselves, you know, it'd be cool. What if we woke David up tomorrow with some of that water? Can you imagine the look on his face? And so they decide to give it a shot. Verse 16. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. I wonder what that journey would have been like. The text tells us they broke through the camp of the Philistines. They apparently didn't rely on stealth in the middle of the night. They actually used their strength and fought through, once they got to Bethlehem, 15 miles away, fought through the garrison that was there. They drew water from the well and then they returned back to Adullam. This is an, uh, an incredible display of affection for their leader, their love for David. It's an incredible moment of bravery. Then we read this in verse 16. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of, men, of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These, three thi- or these things the three mighty men did. Now, when we read that, it sounds very wasteful, doesn't it? And, and inconsiderate of David. It's almost as if David doesn't appreciate the lengths to which his men went for this gift. But we should actually understand this passage as an example of just the opposite. It's not ingratitude, but it's awe and worship here. You see, David rightly understands the great lengths to which these men went and how precious of a gift this was. David grasps that, and he rightly understands that such a precious gift is too valuable for him. It would be wasted on himself. And so when it says that he pours the water out on, he pours the water out, it's not just like, you know, if you and I were just to dump something on the ground. This is language of a drink offering, an offering of worship to God. This is why it says that he poured it out to the Lord. He offers up this unfathomable, unbelievable, valuable, precious gift to God himself. This is the only proper response that David can think of because he understands that God wants the very best of his life and he's not going to use this on himself. Several years ago, our church went through the book of Mark. And as we were going through the book of Mark, we encountered a number, another story of absolutely incredible waste that was actually a sign of incredible 
devotion. The story is found in Mark chapter 14, just days before Jesus' crucifixion. We, we encounter this, women, this woman in Bethany. It says this in Mark chapter 14. And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Because as you dig into this passage, you begin to realize just how significant this woman's actions are, how costly this gift really was. When it says it was very costly, we're not talking about like the $500 range where you know, it's, a, it's an extravagant gift, but it's within the realm of, of possibility. This gift was, was more in the, the, the area of like $50,000 that this woman pours out on Jesus. This is a family heirloom that she has, and she breaks the flask. There's no going back, and she pours this out on Jesus. It's an unbelievable waste. What inspires such lavish devotion? It's because she understands in a way that Jesus' disciples failed to, that Jesus is worthy of that kind of devotion. You know, that's the exact same thing we see from David in this moment, the greatness of this gift. Here, it's not so much in the gift itself, but in the, what it cost his men. For him, it, it is too great of a gift, too valuable of a gift to use on himself, to spend on himself. And so he pours it out, not because of ingratitude, but because of worship, that he is not worthy of such devotion from his men. Only God is. No wonder men were willing to follow David because remember what we've seen throughout our time in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel that these books are ultimately about our need for a king to point us to the true king, to point us to God. And that's exactly what we see from David here. He takes this incredible act of devotion and he redirects it to the one who is actually worthy of such devotion. David, right here in this passage, living out his role as the king over God's people. This is what it means for David to be a man after God's own heart. Not perfect, but he understands his role to point people to God. And that's why people are drawn to him. People like the rest of this chapter. This chapter ends with what is. There's no two ways about it. It is a list. This is a list. There might be a line or two in here about the various exploits of certain soldiers, but for the most part, it's just a list. It's just a list of names. And we don't have the time or, frankly, enough information to go into depth on all of these. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read verses 18 through 39. Lord willing, and then we'll just consider them as a whole. So here we go. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the 30. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. 
He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah of Herod, Elika of Herod, Helaz the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezer of Anathoth, Mabunai the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Maharai of Netophah, Heleb the son of Bana of Netophah, Ittai the son of Ribai of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gaash, Abi Albon the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Bahurim, Eliabah, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jathan, Jashan, Jonathan, Shammah, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphet, the son of Ashabai, of Makkah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro, of Carmel, Parai, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. I think we're done here. <laughs> you know, there's a, a few that are in this list that we might know. We know Abishai, we know Asahel. Benaiah, even though we haven't met him yet, he plays a prominent role at the beginning of Solomon's reign. But for the most part, we don't know too many of them. Their deeds are lost to history, at least for us, but not for God. You know, in God's sovereign wisdom, he intended for these names to be here, to be right here. And I think part of the reason why is because he wants it to serve as a reminder to us that he notices all the unnoticed deeds of his people. He takes notice. And he doesn't forget. But pay close attention to how this text ends. It ends with this sobering mention of Uriah the Hittite. These two passages, chapter 21, chapter 23, for me, they've been a breath of fresh air as, as we compare them to what we looked at for, honestly, the last couple months. Because here, we find David finally again this picture of David faithfully living out his calling as a king, not, not dealing with the consequences of his sin concerning Bathsheba and, and Uriah. He's finally living out his calling as the king over God's people, pointing people to God himself. And then we get to the end of this chapter. And here we see a reminder. There's still that matter with Uriah. 
And I think it's from that place that we can begin to consider what this text actually means. How does this text apply to us? What are some lessons we can gain or what can we learn from this text? And I'm just going to offer five suggestions and then close with the main point of, this, of these two passages. The first one is one that we've seen time and time and time again. The mention of Uriah reminds us of what we've seen throughout 2 Samuel. We need a better king. And you know, we're at that point where you might be tired of hearing me say that. But the text continues to make that point, and so I'm compelled to continue to make that point as well. I hope your response to the repetition of story after story after story of David is not good enough, that we need someone better. I, I hope it's not for your eyes to glaze over, but instead to see this as an avalanche of evidence of our need for the right type of king. And it's not just about David either. Each and every one of us has sought to sit on the throne of our own lives, and we see the end result here. What happens when you put someone else besides God in charge of your life and seat them on the throne? It might be David, it might be yourself. The point at the end of the story is you need something better than you. You need something better than David. We need a better king. That's the first point. Second, notice God's utter commitment to his people here absolutely astonishing commitment to his people. That's the, that's the amazing good news of this chapter that has to be held in connection with the previous point. Because in spite of all of David's shortcomings and failures, we never see God turn his back on David. God never says to David, all right, you've just gone too far. I can't forgive you for that. I could have done this and this and this, but you made it to this point and, and we're done. Find someone else, and I'm going my own way. No, God never says that. Even as we are left wondering, you know, David, you fall so short of the ideal, we see, you know, God remains committed to him. Have you ever considered that that's true of you as well? That's true of us as well. Each of these stories of deliverance from lions, from giants, from enemy armies, from raiders and marauders, from it all, they're meant to serve as their own avalanche of evidence that God will not abandon his people. That's been one of the really neat things about going uh, on Wednesday nights, the, the Crosswinds Kids Ministry. This past week, we talked about this very thing that there is an, an avalanche of evidence that God is committed to his people, that he keeps his promises, and that he will prove himself faithful time and time and time again. And because of that, you can trust him today. This ties closely to the next point. God's grace is greater than our sin and failures. You know, the mention of Uriah here is not meant to leave us wallowing in condemnation and depression. It's a very sad reminder of how far David has fallen from the ideal that God has for his king. But rather than frustration and sadness, it should leave us to marveling at God's grace, that in spite of all of the wrong that David has done, God does not give up on him. 
Does it seem too good to be true that the same is true of you as well? Earlier this week, I was talking to a friend from college. And this friend was struggling with a sense of condemnation for what he had done wrong in his life. And I encouraged him to remember that God brings to light our sin. Yes, that's very true, and it is painful. But he brings to light our sin not to leave us in condemnation, but instead to lead us to worship. That the notion that God's grace is bigger than our shortcomings and failures does not leave us wallowing in depression over the wrong that we have done, but instead leads to worship that God has forgiven us in spite of all of that. God's grace is indeed greater than our sin and failures. Another point. God takes care of his people through his people. One of the really cool things about this passage or these passages is that while there are some astonishing and maybe even miraculous feats in these stories, they are profoundly ordinary. And what I mean by that is that God doesn't intervene to save Israel by striking down the enemy armies with lightning or by opening up the ground, or sending angels out to defeat these armies. No, he uses the obedience of ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. This is one of the beautiful things about the church today. God takes care of his people, and most of the time he does that through his people. It is so cool. It is absolutely astonishing to see how God meets the physical needs, but not only physical, the emotional, spiritual, relational needs of his people time and time and time again through his people. That is one of my favorite parts of my job, that I get just a little glimpse of how God's people are at work caring for one another, how God meets the needs, takes care of his people through his people. That's one of the beautiful things about walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus, because when you're doing that, you're going to be exposed to opportunities to be used by God to take care of those who are around you, to take care of his people if you are willing to be used by him to meet those needs. God takes care of his people through his people. One final truth, and I understand this passage is not the most engaging, especially here at the end, just a list of names, but these names are a powerful reminder of something. The, The names of these unknown servants may not matter to us, but they matter to God. They might not matter to you, but they matter to God. Now, Let's be real. Do I expect anyone to memorize 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 18 through 39? Yes. No, I don't. Over the past week, so this is, you know, just Jordan outside of personally following Jesus right here. Over the past week, my Bible reading has taken me through Ezra and Nehemiah. And there are a couple chapters in those books that are just lists of names. And I'll be the first to say that I put it on cruise control. And just kind of, you know, okay, well, how many verses do I have left? Can I just skim through this? You know, it's hard for us to take a lot out of passages like these. But what we can take out of them is a larger picture approach. 
to understand that God is aware of every single deed done in obedience to him, no matter how big it is, no matter how small it is. And and if the Lord doesn't return first, the same thing is true about you. You know, you will be largely forgotten in three to four generations. I I don't say that to be mean or uncaring, It's just the reality of life. I don't know much of anything about my great-great-grandparents. Certainly nothing of significance. You will be forgotten, I will be forgotten by this world. But you will never be forgotten by God if you are his child. If you are living a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus, your name and your deeds will never fade into obscurity. Your your name may fade away from this world, but never in the eyes of the God of creation. And God has given us a better gift than our names being written in the book of 2 Samuel. Our names have been written in the book of life and thousands of years from now, tens of thousands of years from now, millions of years from now, billions of years from now, for all eternity, if God knows your name, he will never forget it. He will never forget you and you will get to dwell with him forever. And that leads us to the overarching message of this passage, of these texts. It's simply a question You know, as we consider the devotion of these men to their king, King David, as we consider how God remembers those who are faithful to him, we're left with a question each of us has to answer, and it's simply this. Am I devoted to the true king? Am I devoted to the true king? That's the heart of these two texts. 2 Samuel chapter 21, 2 Samuel chapter 23, as we marvel at the great works of faith of these men from thousands of years ago, Our eyes are turned toward a better king, King Jesus. And we are left to ask, what about me? Am I devoted to the true king? Do these stories of past greatness, past devotion, could the same thing be said about me as I serve and follow an even better king? You see, these deeds of obedience that God might ask of you, they might be huge. They might be a call for you to to leave everything, to to move to the other side of the world for the sake of the gospel, but but many times they are far less flashy, but no less challenging. What if we saw ordinary obedience in the day-to-day of your life as the great calling of your life? As we consider these stories of deliverance, ask, what about us? Am I devoted to the true king? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I do ask that you would use it to transform us. Holy Spirit, that we would not have this word fall on ears that are deaf, but that you would enable us to respond. Have mercy on us, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.